Megan. I'm Jess. And we are Friends Friends with Bros. We're back. Your Friends with Bros are back with the second season of Don't Worry About My Hair. We hope to create a space that offers relatable conversations while providing some inspiring content to promote a positive mindset and encouraging you to manifest your purpose, okay? And feel support from your friends with pros to go after it, get going, get it together, and do you, boo-boo. All right, let's go. Hey, y'all. This week, we have a special episode because it is Child Life Month. Whoop, whoop. So in case you haven't heard me and Megan talk about it a million times, we met at our job as child life specialists. A child life specialist is in the hospital, typically in pediatric settings, to reduce the stress and anxiety children and family experience related to healthcare, hospitalization, and they have a multitude of ways they do that, mostly through play, but through preparing kids for what they're going to experience or for supporting kids through really challenging experience, and that includes siblings and parents. So about last June, we got to talk to our girl, Katie, who is the host of the Child Life On Call podcast. This is a podcast where parents share their journeys and experiences related to having a child with an illness or a medical condition. Katie talked to me and Megan about racism in healthcare settings and how to create an anti-racist practice in our child life role. So we wanted to share that episode here, and we do want you to go check out the Child Life On Call podcast that is available on childlifepodcast.com or wherever you get your podcast called Child Life On Call Podcast. So tune in and listen, and we hope you leave comments on Katie's podcast as well as here and on our social media. Tune in. You're listening to Friends with Froze, a conversation about facing diversity and supporting Black Americans in the field of child life on the Child Life On Call Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Child Life On Call podcast. When your child is sick, the whole world seems to stop in its tracks. Plans and priorities change, and your number one job becomes figuring out how to get your child well again. For some of us, rest, medications, and relaxation can do the trick. But for others, it takes more. It takes countless doctor appointments, invasive medical testing, therapy, surgeries, the list goes on, and then you still may not have all the answers or results you were hoping for. This podcast features parents of children that have an illness or medical condition and gives them a place to share their own journeys and experiences. We will talk about the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, but one thing seems to remain the same. Children are resilient and teach us more about ourselves and the world than we could ever imagine. Thank you so much for lending a listening ear and opening up your heart to these families and this podcast. I'm your host, Katie Taylor. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 40th episode of the Child Life On Call podcast. 
This little passion project of mine has introduced me to so many inspiring people and opened up my heart and brain in so many ways that I could not even begin to imagine in 2017 when this podcast first began. I had thought a lot about making this 40th episode something special, and I'm so honored to say that today this is something incredibly special that I am so honored to share with you. Let me be the first to stand up and say that I have not actively done my part to reach diverse families on this podcast. Out of almost 35 families, less than a handful are something other than white. It makes me want to puke. It also makes me want to change so, so badly. In the wake of George Floyd's murder, the world has been turned on its head like it should have been. It shouldn't have taken this long for protest and change. It's scary. It hurts to admit. It can feel overwhelming to look inward at the way we've been living our lives, but we've got to do it. I messed up, and I should have easily, easily looked at the disparity that I myself had been creating on this podcast. It would have been easy for me to reach out, find more black moms, more people of color to represent their issues, because what we've learned is that no matter what kind of diagnosis or illness that your child may have, we're all looking for support and we can all find camaraderie amongst each other despite the color of our skin. But that's all changing now. I have a platform and people and mothers and fathers and hospital healthcare workers who are listening, and now it's my turn to listen. Today, I am so excited to bring to you Meg and Jess. These two are relatively new to the podcast world, but they bring so much joy and laughter and fun and authenticity that I'm obsessed with them already, and I've never even met them in real life before. They are called Friends with Froze, and they host a podcast called Don't Worry About My Hair. I'm so honored to share with you my conversation with these two amazing women so that we can learn to grow as child life specialists, people in the healthcare field, and humans. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Megan. I uh, work currently as a nurse at a large major children's hospital in the Philadelphia region. Um, I'm from Texas and lived a little bit in Los Angeles, kind of moved all around, but I have a degree in nursing and then my master's degree in child life. So just passionate about children in the hospital in general and, um, and how we can reduce stress. And I'm Jess, Jess Whittington. Um, I work at the same hospital as Megan, and that's where we met. Um, I'm a child life specialist, and I'm dual child life specialist recreation therapist. So I got my degree in recreation therapy at Temple, Temple University, and mm-hmm. then whoop, 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 and then <laughs> I went and I worked as a rec therapist for five years, and then I went back and got a fellowship. Um, to do child life because I always wanted to be dual. It's just very hard to find dual internships. <laughs> so I found, I got a fellowship and got my child life cert. And now I've been a CLS for five years and I've worked um, with the rehab population. I'm very passionate about rehab and I'm very passionate about dual cert. So that's my little yes. quip there. That's cool. So <laughs> Megan, are you working as a child life specialist or a nurse right now? So right now I'm working as a nurse. When I first came to this hospital, I was working as a child life specialist for about the first three years of my career at this hospital. And for the past 10 months, I jumped back into nursing. Um, so funny enough, I started child life in dialysis, which I was not expecting at all. Um, it's just a really underserved population in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and I developed a, a true passion. I know that's our buzzword right now, a passion, but I really <laughs> love that population. So um, going back into nursing, I um, had to orient on a different unit, but I'm actually starting back on dialysis as a nurse tomorrow. So that's exciting. Oh <laughs> so exciting. It'll be so cool to go back into a unit, like as a different clinical role and just see what it's yeah. like. And so to start off our um, interview, I wanted to do a little bit of fun. Um, and this is called this or that. Yay! And so I just want y'all to tell me right off the bat, which one you would choose. So mm. day shift or night shift? Day shift. Ooh, days. <laughs> okay. That was easy. Um, are you a coffee drink or are you an energy energy drink person? Oh, tea? I like is tea. that an option? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, well, I was going to write coffee or tea, but I was like, tea, Katie. I was like, you're so not cool. People are drinking five hour energies these days. People are, you're right. There are people <laughs> that I've seen with that. And also people live in like love coffee, like they real do. serious. Is and I'm not really when I'm like, no, thank you. I've got my green tea. Okay, good. Okay. Yes. You're tea people. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, here's a good one. Are you like trendy scrub styles, like the new fig stuff, or do you go old school? Uh, we had no oh. options. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have, I'm a, I wear, what are the, what are the pants? They're khakis. I wear khakis. You wear khakis? I wear khakis. I wear like, I feel like they, I get made fun of because I don't wear scrubs as much. Yeah. I'm definitely a, khaki cargo pant okay are cargo pants still cool i mean they hold stuff right oh gosh that means no <laughs> <laughs> what they don't hold is fashion okay okay yeah we got it noted i don't wear cargos <laughs> um, and what about you like as a nurse do you have to stick to a certain scrub style or uh-huh. Yeah, so now we we had to have a uniform. A couple years back, it was you could wear like any, literally any t-shirt you wanted and scrub bottoms, but now we have a standardized uh, uniform. But we have a few options of like different styles of pants, but nothing to write home about. Okay. Just regular degular. <laughs> uh, all right, next question. If you had to work one of these holidays, which would it be? Thanksgiving or Christmas? Christmas. Oh, Thanksgiving is too big in my family. It has I'm to be doing, Christmas. I'm doing Thanksgiving because Christmas, you get a lot of the calls. Yeah. You do. Yes. You do. Okay. And so for your lunch break, are you like lunch alone, don't bother me, or a lunch in a group setting? Alone. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm calling like seven different groups. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so I know there's like, it's like you don't actually always get to choose this, but hospital mask or make your own. <laughs> oh, if, if I had the option, it would be my own to have a little bit of style and flair yeah. and something different. If yeah. there was a choice, uh, make your own would be better. I know. They're like, you can put the one you make on top of your regular mask. I'm like, oh, no. that's nice. You can do that. <laughs> yeah, That's too that's, much. It's too heavy. Oh, to breathe. <laughs> All right, and then last, this or that, clogs or sneakers? Sneakers. 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 All right, see, I'm unfashionable because I still do clogs. Oh, <laughs> really people love me. them, though. They do. It they makes do. me taller. Um, oh. 
I don't know. It just like, well, it's a thing. It's a thing. It's okay. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank y'all for playing that little game with me. Um, <laughs> and then I wanted to get started because um, I've really been looking at myself in this podcast and I've done a terrible job of reaching out to diverse people and families and having them share their experiences. And until um, I really look at myself and I'm honest about that, I'm, I'm not going to be able to change. So um, I wanted to speak with you guys today um, just to get some of your input about some of our families in the hospital and things they may be experiencing or feeling or um, just some insight you guys have. And um, that's why I'd love to have you on the podcast today. So if you're okay, I'll go ahead and get started with some of our questions. Have you uh, received any feedback or comments from Black families regarding challenges due to limited diversity of the hospital staff? I, don't, I know that's a big question. For those of you who can't see us, Jess and I are both Black women. Um, and here in Philadelphia, we do have a pretty diverse population that we serve at the hospital. Uh, working in areas that I've worked with, uh, there have been a high population of Black patients. And so, yeah, our patients and families definitely can recognize that there is a lack of diversity in some staff. Um, with that, we've, you know, not necessarily, I can't say I've necessarily heard commentary, but I have, like, I feel there's like a natural level of comfortability when you enter a room with someone who looks like you. So that could be, or sounds like you, or, or just shares the same culture. If you're a Russian immigrant and you moved here and you notice the doctor has a Russian last name, right? And they come into your room, there's already a level of comfortability. You may not know anything about them. They may not have family that's been to Russia in the past 25 years, but you know, there's a level of comfort of, hmm, okay, I see that we have shared commonalities. So um, I think for a lot of patients and families, when we walk in, it's, it's something that's like, ah, okay, there's, now they can take a couple layers off that they don't have to explain because I probably have a natural um, understanding of, of whatever it is they're, they're going through. It might not be, you know, diagnosis based, but at least I can have some uh, more of a cultural perspective of uh, what's kind of going on in that family. I don't think that I've received specific feedback. I think um, there's something to be said about being able to look at somebody that you might be able to offhand assume has the same experiences as you. Um, so I think when we do go into rooms with Black families, whether I did um, my fellowship in the ED and um, thinking about working with um, working, walking into a room with a black family and them seeing me and then kind of like, sometimes there's just this like removal of a veneer. And then I think on the other end, like for myself as a professional, there probably is too. Um, because there is a thing called code switching where I kind of talk a certain way when I'm with certain people. And it's kind of like, I think people kind of think of this when they're with there maybe you're you're from the south i am not um but i think like people that have moved to the north from the south where like when they go home to the south their accent comes out a little thicker they start saying mm -hmm. bless your heart a little bit more um so i think i i do the same thing when i'm with like families that might relate to my culture might relate to black culture i might drop a couple g's like on words like instead of saying going i'm saying i'm going in there like you know, just certain things that I would say, I think other families feel like they can drop their veneer too. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I think it hasn't necessarily been certain feedback, but I definitely can get the vibe of feeling a little bit more connection with somebody who might've gone through similar experiences or might understand certain things a little bit better. Um, that's definitely been my experience. Uh, and I've definitely gotten feedback. Um, I worked with a family before um, that the daughter had an oncology diagnosis and was losing her hair. Um, and they were a black family. And, you know, child life, we work with this all of the time where we talk about like hair loss and what that what the resources are. Um, but one thing that stuck with me, I worked with this family probably about four years ago. And one thing that stuck with me was, you know, we had been working on this for a while and the mom pulled me aside and was like, it's just hard to explain to other people what black hair means to black girls and mm -hmm. that hair loss is really hard. And that was kind of hit me because I was like, I, girl, I know you're right. And like, so I think there's just certain things that you don't have to explain when you've grown up as a black child. Um, and for these black parents to have to maybe constantly explain even just like, no, my daughter doesn't need to wash my hair every day for ADLs or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, that's been my experience. So it's not necessarily specific feedback. It's just that relatability and that, that veneer they can drop when they're with somebody that might have similar experiences. Yeah, that makes Yeah, that's great. Good job. Good right. answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry. <laughs> it, it's like, it's emotional. Um, I want to ask a follow-up question and that's like, I don't have black, a lot of black staff at my hospital and I mm -hmm. don't want families to miss out on that comfortability of feeling like they can let their guard down. You know, I think as mm -hmm. specialists, that is our job, no matter what room we walk into, we just, we want to be that safe person for them. Um, you know, it's just not something that we can do, but um, I want to be a good listener. I want to be active. I want to be aware of that stuff and also connect them to people who can understand it. Right. Cause I'm not going to always be the one who gets it and can support them, but maybe I can find somebody else who can. So that's good for me um, to learn about. And uh, thanks for that answer. Yeah. That was word vomit. Sorry about that. Oh no, that was good. No, was good. you're good. <laughs> I, I think the key there is like uh, um, what you're doing now, which is, you know, humility and really listening to families because even if let's say there's nobody that has the same skin tone or anything like that around, like there, there might be still be people that people will feel more comfortable with and just mm -hmm. being able to kind of listen to that family's needs, uh, which mm -hmm. we're all trained to do as child life specialists, mm -hmm. but, um, uh, yeah, really, really tuning in and taking your time and not dismissing families, um, and to, to be able to provide them the best resources is, is just a good starting place. Yeah. And I think in listening, I mean, like you said, like, um, I've had experiences. I mean, like I said, I've been at this place at this hospital now for five years and I've worked with the same team, which is a blessing. And I love my team. Um, but asking, and like, like you said, finding the people that might be able to relate. I have, I work on a rehab. So a lot of times we're dealing with ADLs. And I remember one time one of the OTs came up to me and said, Hey, I talked to this patient about doing an ADL tomorrow, which is an activity of daily living. So they do showers, dressing, teeth, brushing, grooming, everything that they would be doing to teach a kid how to get ready for the day. Um, 
And she said to me, she was like, so I was talking to this patient, they got kind of apprehensive, like more apprehensive than usual when we talked about washing her hair. And I didn't know if this was something she had talked about with you or if there's something you could understand or teach me. And this was probably about a year and a half ago. And I was like, oh, well, thank you for asking. I'm glad you asked that because she has braid and she has like braid extensions. And we as black people don't wash our braid extensions. Maybe you wash it a certain amount of time, maybe every two weeks, some braids you can't wash. So like there's different types of hair. And like, I went into this whole explanation. We don't need to get into it here, <laughs> but I thought it was like admirable that she didn't just say to the patient or make that patient be uncomfortable because we can, we can right. read kids and child life specialists. We can read when a kid seems a little more fearful of something we said, and we can kind of dive deeper. And I think I was appreciative of her recognizing the apprehension without saying, well, why don't you want to take a shower? You know, like without right. jumping to conclusions and going to a person that might be able to connect with them. I mean, fortunately I work with all of the patients on our unit. So she knew I worked with them as well. Um, but being able to acknowledge, like, there was some apprehension there. I don't know what it was about. Can you help me? And like being able to ask those questions and not feeling like, well, that person just doesn't want to take showers and that, you know, they need to wash their hair. So they just need to get up and do it. Mm -hmm. But acknowledging that and being able to ask those questions. Um, and then she was able to go back to that patient and say, hey, we're going to do this ADL today. Um, is there something that can make it more comfortable for you without saying anything about, you know, the hair or anything. And then that patient said, my mom brought me in a shower cap, which was something that, that OT had never heard of, which is a cap to go over your hair to keep it dry. So she, you know, she had found her own way, but like even just her asking and having that dialogue, you know, they got to that point where they could figure out how to help. So I think, like you said, being able to know where to ask and being comfortable asking and not feeling like it's going to be a stupid question or I don't need to ask that question because it can help our patients and families in the long run. Yeah, it seems like even shower caps would be a super simple thing for us to have next to our shampoo and deodorant, mm -hmm. that other stuff that we hand out. And it's like, yeah, just make it available. Yeah, just make mm -hmm. it available. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about child life in this next question, um, and your nursing perspective is helpful too, and um, rec therapy, but my experience is, is child life, so that's a little bit what I'm interested in. What's been one of the most challenging, or what is the, a challenging thing about being a black woman in a predominantly white profession? Ooh, big I'll say, big question. Um, for me, when I initially first started Child Life, I didn't have a good like frame of reference of uh, what hospitals it was at, who was a part of it, et cetera. So it wasn't until I got to my master's program and then from there started having to do practicums and, and uh, internship interviews, et cetera, that I really got a better scope of what the field looks like um, on a larger scale. So it was a little bit surprising to me uh, looking at the population of child life specialists and then I can't lie it was a little bit disappointing because I was like man if we're you know in America servicing all American children here uh well I know child life is global but I'm just talking about from my experience um it just is not reflective of our country right so we know that this profession is mostly young white women 
And I was like, well, where are the men at? Where are the older child life specialists at? Where are the mm -hmm. child life specialists of color? Um, and so I, I just found it really difficult to connect with uh, other child life specialists of color because I didn't even know if there were any that existed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so one of the biggest challenges for me was just like, one, finding that out, and then two, from there, uh, feeling like we could create a space to have more diversity within this field. Now, I know within the past couple of years, the, the ACLP has made some, um, some, some moves in that, and they're now offering a diversity scholarship, et cetera, and I, I think that's necessary. Like, we have to have a diverse field that really can represent the children that we're servicing um, to provide appropriate balance of different types of people within the field. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's harder. I, I think it's nice. It, it Honestly, it was nice that child life requires you to do so much field work because it gives you a heads up before you get into a career that mm -hmm. this is going to be the groups you work with that probably are going to be in encountering. Um, I think one of the ways is, I think the challenge is that um, child life is not well known already. I mean, I think in general, all child life specialists always say they're constantly telling somebody what child lifing actually is. So yes. I think that's a start. Um, I know there's been a push for like child life workshops where child life professionals are going around and educating people in the teaching or people in um, colleges or emerging freshmen in colleges. They're providing education about what child life is to people maybe interested in nursing, maybe interested in teaching and psychology, just to let them know like, hey, if this is the area you're interested in, have you heard of child life? Which is great. I know um, our hospital does this uh, child life workshop and we outreach to people in education programs, psychology programs in local high, uh, high schools. Um, we just reach out in general, but like the colleges, we look, reach out to those schools specifically um, in those programs. But I think also thinking about how are we reaching out to HBCUs, which are historically black colleges and universities, where this mm -hmm. might not be talked about as much. And we know that there's, you know, people that are also there for schooling about psychology, education, and those kind of things. Um, how are we reaching out to schools in like major cities that might be predominantly black, predominantly Latinx, predominantly um, any other race. And I think thinking about, we know child life is not well known and we want to expand the field in general, but how can we expand the field, expand the field in areas that might not have access to resources to participate in these seminars all the time? Like how are we actually expanding our, the knowledge about what we have to offer and what our field is um, in general? Yeah, absolutely. As you said that, oops, sorry, I keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be quiet. <laughs> no, it just, Jess, as you were talking, it made me think of- Oh my uh, gosh. What? What? Am I? Oh, I thought we were frozen. Okay, keep going. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like- It's telling me my thing? internet connection is unstable. Keep going. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you might be unstable. I'm um, unstable. <laughs> so- as you were talking, Jess, it just made me think of an internship experience. Um, so I remember hearing in, in school and in internship, like, you're a child life specialist. You need to be a blank slate. You need to be a blank slate. Like, this was just repeated over and over again. And then I'd gotten some feedback that I talk a lot with my hands, which I do. Um, and some other little pieces of feedback that 
I'm not going to say they didn't sit right with me, but they were just a little bit like unsettling a little bit mm-hmm. because I'm like, some people talk with their hands. That's part of their own family culture or ethnic culture, whatever it is. I'm not going to say that black people talk with their hands because that's not necessarily true. But for me, it was just like, why do I necessarily need to be a completely blank slate? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I had an intern last year, I was telling her that like, that's the way that I was trained. But once I got into the field, I was like, no, mm-hmm. now I'm not coming into a party with a party hat and being my loud self. If it's a serious situation, obviously mm-hmm. I know how to, to, to tailor it and turn the volume up and down, if you will. But I don't believe that. I believe that as professionals, yes, you still have a little bit of your personality and you can, you can bring that in. You don't have to be vanilla. And I don't mean that as a euphemism for being white. I mean, as a standard base that you just add toppings to. I'm strawberry, okay? So I can come oh in my a little God. bit strawberry. Yeah. So I, um, that was something that I just felt was like, as a child life specialist, we need to remember that everybody comes with culture, whether that's family culture or, uh, or ethnic culture. Not that you need to push or impose that on other people, but I don't think it's necessarily necessary that you become a totally blank slate. Well, yeah, we're not robots, you know, yeah. we're not robots providing psychosocial care. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, like that, yeah, that, that's a, that's an interesting experience that you had. I'm, I'm sorry that it was explained to you in that way, but you have just so beautifully shown us that like the colors of people that we are and our feelings. And I mean, even as a woman, like we're told a lot to uh-huh. kind of like simmer down, you know, don't be up. Yep don't show your feelings too much. Don't cry in front of families. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you, like I let that role go a few years ago. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm not sobbing in front of families, but if I'm having an emotional connection, it's not about me, but if I have a tear fall, I'm not going to feel shame about that. Mm-hmm. Um, right. We're humans with humans and, um, mm-hmm. no need to be a blank, blank slate, no matter who you are. Yeah. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Well, I know you don't represent your entire race. Like I don't represent mine. Um, what would you like for white clinical staff to know, change, do things differently? You know, we talked a little bit about listening, asking questions, looking inward. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to learn, so I don't know if you have any advice about that. Um, I think kind of like we said earlier, like just not being afraid to ask questions, not being afraid to admit that you don't you don't get something or you don't understand something. Cause I might not get it either, but at least if we can have a dialogue about maybe what we, what we know to be true from our own experience. And then maybe we can combine that with what you know about this family or this experience for them or how this hospitalization has gone or things like that, that might be helpful. Um, but I also think not being afraid to speak out if you notice something happening that you don't think is right. I, Mm. this week has brought up a lot of um, conversation with my own unit team about just, you know, acknowledging when in meetings, if, why are we calling a parent difficult and we're not calling another parent difficult and like acknowledging that, you know, medical literacy is challenging. And I think I've had families where I'm not only prepping the patient, I'm prepping the parent and just having that patience because sometimes we don't have, everybody doesn't have the same resources as everybody else. I think definitely realizing that um, disparities in health 
in, in the black community are extremely different than those in the white community and really mm -hmm. recognizing, I think there's been a lot of conversation about, you know, why are certain families coming in more often than others? Why are we, there's a huge community, there's a huge black population of patients with sickle cell and really acknowledging like, this is, this is tough and this is sad. And like really realizing if something is called out in a meeting or somebody says something in your presence, having the comfort to say, oh, wait, that didn't really sound right. I hear what you're saying is this. Is that what you meant? Because we need to have a conversation and being able to call things out because I think kind of like you said, we don't, we don't represent our whole race, but in times where you're one of few and you want to call something out, it's hard to not be looked at as being the difficult black person. Like everything's mm -hmm. not about race is what I've been told before. Everything's not about that, but realizing it might be, you know, and it might be perceived that way to me. And if it's being perceived that way to me as the only black person in the room, I don't have another person I could ask. So then I feel like I'm being outcasted. So really acknowledging like, well, tell me, t what did I just say? What did I just say that, that came across as that I'd like to know, or really stepping back and accepting that, you know, even if it's not coming out of a bad place, if someone says something that sounds a little triggering or a little harsh of a criticism than me being able to say, Ooh, whoa, why did you say that? Like, let's think about it. Like being able to feel comfortable calling people out because we can't learn if we don't know that we're, what we're doing is not appropriate and that is not right. I think that's going to be a big thing that would help because like I said, when I'm in those rooms by myself and I hear somebody say something that might be tailored to, you know, you know, this family, all they eat is is fried food. I don't understand. Like I'm telling them to stop coming in. This kid's on track to obesity. All they're eating is fried food. They don't know how to eat right. And I'm like, well, wait, I eat a lot of fried food in my family. We eat big meals together. And these are the big meals we eat together. Like, you know, thinking about general, how we can have conversations and really support people of color. If they are saying, Hey, wait a minute, this sounds like it might be something that's a little coming from in a place of implicit bias you know, really having the comfort with saying that and helping support your colleagues of color, your black colleagues, or, you know, I feel like a lot of times we hear like Arabic, I've had, had this conversation where Arabic families have so many nannies. Oh my God, why do they have so many nannies? Shouldn't somebody be here watching that family? Like, ooh, why are we saying that? Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. And feeling comfort and saying, whoa, easy. Like, you know, this person has a lot on their plate. They have the resources to have a nanny. This nanny does this. Like, really calling it out when you see it so that if someone else does call it out, they're not feeling alone by trying to help somebody learn. Mm -hmm. Great. That's a great response. That was yeah. a lot. It was a lot, but I think it was very well said because I have very minimal to add to that. Um, <laughs> I think it's important. I, I, what I've been hearing from a lot of people, especially this week is that I don't know what to say and, and, it might be hard for some people to strike a balance between knowing about a culture and in generalizations and having some background knowledge so you at least have a foundation. And then how do you take that and then not paint everybody with the same paintbrush? Mm -hmm. So, you know, what I, what I advise people is if, if you have the opportunity to really get to know a, a patient and family, let's say you work in a unit like rehab or somewhere where they have a longer stay, really utilize that to get specifics on that family because that's going to help you advocate for them better 
Um, if you don't, let's say you're working in the emergency department, and you have a quick turnover, then some of that foundational general um, information, like I said, will at least give you some information potentially about what the, the family's um, dealing with in their, in their culture. So yeah, I've heard the same things on my unit of, we keep telling these patients to eat and drink X, Y, Z, and why aren't they doing it? And, you know, I've had to explain that too. They may not have the same resources you do. Mm -hmm. And then once I get to know the family, I now know for sure they don't have the same resources mm -hmm. or access to healthy food right. or mm -hmm. access to rides to get here for their appointment on time. Right. Mm -hmm. So now I know them and I can use that as a fact. It's not a generalization. So mm -hmm. just want to be kind of clear with that of like, um, uh, of that we don't want we don't want to tokenize and we don't want to necessarily automatically lump somebody into something but we do want to have that background knowledge of that yes black people have been disenfranchised black people have been discriminated against mm -hmm. and uh you know depending on what city you're in there might just be slight differences on some of that data but kind of knowing that underneath it all is i think going to be very helpful mm -hmm. Absolutely. It reminds me a lot of just child life in general. We're kind of used to having to step up um, and advocate for things. And this should be no different. This should be part of our language. And I am guilty of standing yes. mounds where a doctor's like, oh, they're eating our tortillas and rice. No wonder. And mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, those are definitely times where I could have and should have stood up. Um, and it's just time we stop being silent. It's just, that's mm -hmm. over. Okay. So that's period. Happened. And that was, mm -hmm. we should have said something, but now we know better. Um, yeah. And so now for it's sure. time to stand up and say that. So um, thank you guys so much for that, that input, because those are all valuable things that we can start implementing today. Um, yeah. Um, oh my gosh. I just have goosebumps. Um, <laughs> I'm so glad you'll have a podcast because you're so eloquent. <laughs> we like we to be talk talking. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So I want to close out. I want you guys to tell us about where we can hear more of you, who you are, talk about your podcast. Um, where can we follow you on Instagram? Um, and if people um, have questions or want to reach out, when and can they do that? Yeah. So I'll put what I can remember in here. So we have a podcast. We are, we're known as your friends with froze, Jess and Megan. Hey. And our <laughs> podcast is called don't worry about my hair. Um, it started ironically enough because we do get questions in general in community and society everywhere, not just at the hospital about our hair a lot. <laughs> um, because sometimes it's curly, sometimes it's straight, sometimes we have braids, sometimes there's a fro, sometimes there's all things going on. And I feel like black, as I said earlier, black hair is a very big topic in black communities in general. Um, mm -hmm. But don't worry about my hair. Like we have things to say. We have experiences besides our hair and we want to just share our perspective on life in general. Um, so you can find our podcast. Don't worry about my hair on Apple podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spotify, Google podcasts. Um, and we're on Instagram at friends with Froze. Um, we don't talk about child lifing as often as I think we do, probably because we do it all the time. Yeah, um, yeah but, we don't talk about it much. Yeah, <laughs> but um, we just talk about like fun, relatable stuff that we're going yes. through. Yeah, uh, we're both in our thirties. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, city living. We're just talking about stuff like that. Or some of us live in the burbs. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Some of us live in the burbs, honey. Yes. Some of us are married people. So yeah, we we have a little, some similarities, some differences, and we just talk about life in general. We have a good time. We do. Yeah. So we hit the, we hit the fun topics and then we hit the the harder topics too, like uh, talking about race and, and, um, you know, the different challenges that we all have in life. Yeah. I think this was a, a really good one for talking about that. And it was something that you just said that I've been telling all my child life friends, like we're experts at these hard conversations. I think that's what we do, right? Where people tell us all the time, I can never do what you do, you know, because we are the ones that are going in the room and we're talking about hard things. And that's what you can do for your friends and family if they're having a hard time talking to, because that's what we're, we're the experts. We talk about taboo. We talk about tough. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, we're in it now. We're going to do it. Mm-hmm.